0: Well, good evening. Um, I'm really excited to share with you tonight. If you would, if you have your Bibles, turn to Hebrews chapter 13. That's where we're going to be. So about five hours from here, there is a house across the Mississippi River that is totally enshrined to Elvis Presley. And you probably think I'm talking about Graceland. I'm actually talking about Graceland 2. That's T-O-O as in like Graceland also. Um, And so Graceland 2 is a house owned by this guy named Paul McLeod in Holly Springs, Mississippi. Um, And and he is just obsessed with Elvis to the point that he has an extensive Elvis collection. He has memorabilia all over his house. And so you can go to his house 24-7, 365, ring the doorbell, pay him $5, and he will give you a tour of this house. Um, Paul, he's a character, like for sure. He's a character. And you could say a lot of things about him. But one thing about him that is absolutely certain is that Paul lives his life wholly consumed with following the king of rock and roll. (laughs) Just a little icebreaker there. So um, before we get started, uh, I mean, I'm sorry, before we get to the verse that we're going to focus on tonight, it'll be helpful to have a super high-level overview of the book of Hebrews. Um, So we know that the book of Hebrews was written to Jewish Christians, and we also know from chapter 10 that they've been facing persecution for following Jesus to the point that some of them wondered if it might be better just to forsake following Jesus and go back to um, just different components of the Jewish religion. Um, and so the author has been encouraging them throughout the book that Jesus has appeared to various components of the Jewish religion and encourages them to remain faithful to following Jesus. When we get to chapter 13, they've already established that Jesus is God's very word. He is the hope of the new creation. He is the eternal priest. He is the perfect sacrifice, and therefore they should follow the models of faith That have gone before them and be faithful to follow Jesus despite any hardships or persecution that come their way. In the middle of chapter 13, there is a warning not to be led astray from the gospel and revert back to practices in the law. And they are told to remember and imitate their leaders who first told them the news of the gospel, and they shouldn't change or go away from this message because Jesus himself doesn't change. Um, Furthermore, they should lay aside the weights of the law, including sacrificed meats, and the tense, because those things are temporary and their hope isn't found in such things. Their hearts cannot be strengthened by works of the law. They can only be strengthened by grace. We then come to four verses that really draw out the point that the author is trying to make. And so we're going to look at verses 10 through 13, and then we're going to come back and focus specifically on verse 11. I think I said 10 through 15. I meant 10 through 13. Um, these four verses express one complete thought, Um, But the writer gives us words to help us see where the emphasis is. So you'll see the words for, so, therefore, and that helps us to understand the emphasis. So we're going to look at verse 10. It says, we have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. Now, you might remember this morning, Brad was talking about how the priests and the Levites, they could take some of the spoils from the sacrifices that were given by the people, and that's how God made provision for them as they served the tent. But... They were not allowed to eat the meat of the sacrifices that were to atone for sins. Why? Well, part of the reason, if you look at verse 11, for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So essentially, the priests weren't able to eat the sacrifices partly because it was burnt up. They couldn't eat it. There was nothing left to eat. Um, Verse 12, and this is huge, so pay, pay close attention here. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. So we're going to take just a brief time out and acknowledge this. Um, If you're new to the Bible or new to Christianity, and you may be wondering, uh, why did Jesus have to die to sanctify the people for their sins? Isn't that what these animals were for? Um, Yeah, that's a great question. Well, that's because the sin offerings of animals were never fully designed to atone for sin. So Hebrews 10, 4 says, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Rather, they were pointing forward to the one to come, the perfect spotless Lamb of God, who would make atonement for the entire world and not just the nation of Israel. So um, we learned in BTI a couple weeks ago that when we think about the law, we shouldn't just think of it as a ladder that you climb in order to get to God. And as Brad was saying this morning, that's kind of like every other world religion. Like, how do we get up there? Um, with Christianity, it's not the case with the law. Rather, we should think of the law as a mirror that we look in. And when you look into that mirror, you realize that there's a problem because the standard of God's holiness, none of us measure up to it. Um, and the Israelites would have known what it was like to look into that mirror because when they had sinned or had a bodily ailment that made them unclean, they would have to go outside the camp, away from the presence of God in the tabernacle, until they could be made clean to bring them to come back into the camp. And we should understand that feeling because when it comes to our resume of holiness, all of us are outside the camp. The Bible says that we all stumble in many ways, and we know that the wages of sin is death, so that's bad news for us. But the good news, verse 12, just as those animals were sacrificed outside the camp, so Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. That's because this is what Jesus does He leaves the Holy of Holies to come outside the camp to where we are. He doesn't wait for us to get it together. He comes to us. He dwelt or tabernacled with us, and he kept the law perfectly, making him the perfect sacrifice for our sins. He died, he rose from the dead, and he's now seated at the right hand of the throne of God to intercede to God for those who follow him as the greatest high priest that there has ever been. And he's eternal. And this is incredible news for us. It is our most desperate need. And now, what are the implications for us if we follow Jesus in this life? And here is the point of the passage. Verse 13 says, Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. Now, remind me again the reproach that he endured. He suffered outside the gate unto death just like the animals whose bodies were burned outside the camp back in verse 11. So this is not so much of a battle cry for us as it is a really sober reality, right? So now as we go back to verse 11, let's look at the idea of animal sacrifices that were burned and consider the implications of being outside the camp or being outsiders. When we think about bearing the reproach reproach that Christ endured, And he also was consumed outside the camp. I think we make this conclusion. Following Jesus requires us to offer our lives as living sacrifices, fully consumed with following him. And by doing so, we will be viewed as outsiders in this world. So last week I was having lunch with Evan Smith. And he was telling me about a trip that he took to Israel once. And he said, while we were there, our tour guide was a Jewish man. And everywhere we went, he would say, well, you know, here's where Jesus did this and here's where Jesus did that. And Jesus said this and, of course, this. And then they went to the place where Jesus delivered the Sermon on the Mount. And he was just very knowledgeable of the Sermon on the Mount, you know. And somebody said, hey, um, you know, you understand a lot about Jesus. Have you ever thought about following him? Like what's, you know, you know everything about him. And he said, you guys don't understand. If I were to decide to follow Jesus, that would change everything in my life. Because I'm Jewish, and my family is Jewish. If I were to decide to follow Jesus, my friends and family would just disown me, and that would completely change my life in so many ways. That's a sobering thought. That's the kind of reproach that the author is describing. You lose everything that this world has to offer in order to gain Christ, fully consumed, outside the camp. So what about us? What would it look like for us to be fully consumed with following Christ? Because those animals in verse 11, they didn't just bleed a little outside the camp. They were fully consumed. So high school and college students, what would it look like for you to be fully consumed with following Christ? How would it change how you use your free time? Or how would it change the people you surround yourself with? Those of you in the workplace, how would it change your priorities if you were fully consumed with following Christ? That's my place. Would your coworkers take notice? What would they think about you? Retirees. How does this affect how you spend your time or spend your money or how you relate to your family members? Stay-at-home moms. If you were to start each day focusing on being fully consumed with following Christ, how would that rearrange your priorities of the day? In order to be like those animals, we have to die to ourselves. We are living sacrifices now. So that means it's going to take a lot of sacrifice. If you are living your life sold out for Jesus, it will cost you. And if this sounds a little intense, it just is. Think about how the Christian life is described in chapter 12, right? It says, um, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Have you ever seen a race that wasn't intense? Maybe some of you are like, I don't know. Well, try racing someone to the car when you leave here tonight and just see if that's intense. It probably would be. So this is incredibly challenging to me, and it's worthy of reflection for sure. The question, I think, is how is my life a living sacrifice fully consumed with following Jesus? That's what we should all be asking. Well, I think that there are three things that we can do to help us. I think we can look back, look up, and look ahead. So number one, look back. In verse 7 here, it says, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. So later tonight, you should flip through uh, back to Hebrews 11 and read through and just look at the different heroes in the hall of faith there and consider their way of life. Think about Moses. He considered the reproach of Christ greater greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking forward to the reward. Greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. Consider that. Maybe look for an example closer to home. For me, I remember my granddad as an example that he sent for me, set for me. Um, He was just so overcome with joy and gratitude to the Lord for saving him that he just couldn't help but share his faith with people around him. And that sounds awkward or weird. It really wasn't. It was just natural for him. Um, And I recall some of the pushback that he and my grandmother got when they went to be missionaries in Brazil for three years immediately after they retired from working. Um, And everybody would just say things like, you're going to do what? You're going to retire and do what? And they'd say, you shouldn't do that. Think about all you're going to miss with your grandkids. You should go on vacations. This is your time to travel. And honestly, I think even at one point, I asked them if they wouldn't go to Brazil. And then once they got there, it was really hard. Not only did they feel like outsiders from leaving all their fans and friends and family and going to a different country, when they got to the different country, I mean, they were really stuck out like a sore thumb. If you can picture two 65-year-olds from Cabot, Arkansas, in Sao Paulo, Brazil. I mean, it was really tricky for them. Um, But they weren't going because they felt that they owed God something or because they just really thought that Brazil would be an awesome place to live. They did it because they were living lives that were fully consumed with following Christ. And um, that's the kind of faith that I hope to imitate. So number two, look up. Pray. This might be really the only thing that you can do. When times are most desperate, when you are most unsure what you should pray, the times that you feel least consumed with following Jesus, that's exactly when you should pray. Brad said this morning that the Lord provides what the servant lacks. So maybe pray this. Maybe pray verse 9, that your heart would be strengthened by grace. That would be a really great thing to pray this week. It's good to remember that we are not a nuisance when we come to the Lord in prayer. It delights the Lord when we come to him. In his book, A Praying Life, Paul Miller says this, Jesus opens his arms to his needy children and says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So the criteria for coming to Jesus is weariness. Come overwhelmed with life. Come with your wandering mind. Come messy. What does it feel like to be weary? You have trouble concentrating. The problems of the day are like claws in your brain. You feel pummeled by life you have so many problems you don't even know where to start you can't do life on your own anymore jesus wants you to come to him and then finally look ahead so haley and i have been married for 11 years now and i recently came across like a stack of old like notes and letters that we wrote to each other back when we were engaged and it just kind of brought back the feelings of remembering how excited we were and just how how much anticipation we had for our wedding And I remember just being so excited to see, finally get to see Haley in her wedding dress on the day, you know? And I remember thinking how I just couldn't wait to just be married and just get to spend all the in-between times together in the day, like when we're getting ready for work in the morning or like in the evening, just chatting right before we fall asleep at night. Um, And I remember thinking that I could endure anything to get to that day. Like it didn't matter what kind of hardship came or what kind of hurdle or obstacle, it wouldn't matter. It didn't matter. I could get through anything to get to that day, and I was looking forward to it. Um, Well, this book that we read starts and ends with a wedding. And if you think about it right now, the table is being set, and the feast is being prepared. The bride is being prepared to meet the groom. And the reason we can lay aside the weights of temporary things that don't save, things that the original readers needed to lay aside, the meats and the tents from the law, is that, look at verse 14, Here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. So, to echo Ray Orland in his book, Marriage and the Mystery of the Gospel, when I think about Christ gathering all of the church from all of history, from all over the world, bringing us to Him to enjoy Him forever, and the new heaven and the new earth being the venue for which we will celebrate. I can face anything. That's a thought that makes me want to bear the reproach that Christ did to offer my life as a sacrifice fully consumed with following him. And I really hope that you'll join me. Let's pray. Oh God, we are just so grateful for your love for us and we are grateful that we can come to you in prayer. We ask that even this week that you would strengthen our hearts by grace and that you would help us to live lives that are fully consumed with following you. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.